0: You've heard of high net worth, but we're talking about high net purpose. We want to find out how entrepreneurs and global leaders in our network are allocating financial, human, and intellectual capital in the pursuit of purpose. I'm your host, Joe McCarthy, and in today's episode, we had the privilege of sitting down with the remarkable Sir David King at Cambridge University. Formerly the Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK government, Sir David is a global leader in science and collaboration, whose illustrious career includes pioneering the world's first legally binding climate legislation, the UK Climate Change Act, and leading negotiations at COP15 in Paris not to mention his co-founding of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, whose work we delve into in our conversation. We take a dive into some of the science behind the current state of our planet, discuss how he's worked to drive international collaboration, uncovered how nations can work together to address pressing challenges, and learn some of the amazing blueprints for salvation. Get ready to be shocked and inspired as we uncover the awe-inspiring journey of a true visionary, the Sir David King podcast welcome to high net purpose um thank you for hosting us at um down in college cambridge this morning uh it's the coming to the end of winter coming into the springtime um it's lovely to be on college um just to deal with some formalities you are sir david king but you said it's okay for me to call you dave this morning yes that's absolutely okay um and it was our climate investment uh, ally uh, jamie arnell that introduced us Um, So thanks to Jamie for putting us uh, together and connecting us. Um, Have you come up with an articulation of your purpose?
1: Can I articulate my purpose? I I think what has developed over the time is a much clearer articulation than I've had when I first came into the field. When I first came into the field... Uh, was the reason why I accepted the position to work with Tony Blair and give up my wonderful positions here in Cambridge. Um, And and that is simply that I, I felt that the climate situation was leading us into a global crisis and that that crisis needed a much greater impact from the scientific community than was appearing at that time. This was around the year 2000. That was the only reason I accepted that job, to go in and work with Tony Blair, because I thought I might be able to have an impact. So my uh, I'm, my reason for setting it all up in that way is that I, I'm going to say that this is the biggest crisis our planet has ever faced up to, both in terms of the future of our civilization but also in terms of the future of the biosystems of the world so we we human beings through our actions over the last few hundred years have created this enormous challenge through not recognizing that we are a part of the natural world and not apart from the natural world. We were throwing all of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere without any understanding of the effect this would have on the future of our planet. And so that that really summarizes where I stand. Can we step in as a humanity? That's what I mean by we, all of us, step in and manage to change our ways. So if I, I can just refer to the, the the people who live with the natural resources, these are the indigenous people of the world, the people like the Sami and the Inuit who've been living for perhaps thousands of years up there on the permafrost, on ice, experiencing very low temperatures. And these people believe they have to protect what they've got used to. Uh, and so while they rely on, for example, reindeer for meat and for clothing, they nevertheless look after reindeer and look after the environment that protects the reindeer. Now, we, we have lost that ability to understand how important uh, our ecosystems are to our future.
0: Pre-2000, when you joined the government as the chief scientific advisor to the UK, um, your academic research was highlighting to you then that there was
1: a climate crisis emerging? No, it wasn't. So my, my science, which I worked on for 35 years, was entirely related to the, answering the question, what is a solid surface? Okay. <laughs> and that, that meant understanding a solid surface any sort of solid surface at the atomic and electronic level. And that understanding was not there when I started my research. So I was one of a fairly small group of people around the world who developed the current level of understanding of surfaces. The interaction with the atmosphere and the understanding of what we were doing to the ecosystems really comes from my colleagues here in the chemistry department at Cambridge. A predecessor of mine, uh, as professor of physical chemistry here, won the Nobel Prize for his work on a molecule that nobody was very interested in. This was a three-atom molecule called ozone. And what his interest in ozone was that he knew that if he could hit a molecule with a high-energy photon, that molecule would split up and produce highly reactive oxygen atoms. And so he could study chemical reactions at a timeline that was developed by the understanding of laser shots at that time, so pulsed laser shots. He got his Nobel Prize simply for working on reactions at a very short timescale. But what we had then in the chemistry department was an understanding of all of the reactions of ozone, very big research groups. We knew all about the actions of ozone and bingo. When the British Antarctic Survey in the same city was looking at the atmospheric uh, impact of what we were doing in creating CFCs, etc., we could model all of that. The Mike only contribution was saying, actually, Solid surfaces are where reactions take place very effectively. Make sure that we look at the presence of ice crystals in the stratosphere. And actually, those ice crystals play a critical role because the reactions of, for example, CFCs with ozone up there all take place on the surface of ice crystals. Not my work, but me just putting up a hand and saying, what about this?
0: In one of our earlier podcasts with Mark Pollack, he talked about the, um, you know, sometimes we find the challenge or the challenge finds us. In this instance, was that one of those situations where you sort of bumped into something and you went, hang on a minute, this is huge.
1: We've got this, yes.
0: Because you were also at the same time in 2000, the head of the government office for, for science, but then you got accredited with raising the profile hugely on the climate side during that initial seven-year period. What was it like moving from the world of academia into, into government?
1: Terrifying. I had no idea what I was taking on uh, because all of my career, I had been focusing on teaching and research and, of course, on administration, and academics do all three. Um, but I, I had never understood how to work in the political sphere. Now I say that, my background is in South Africa. I was kicked out of South Africa for my actions in battling against apartheid as a student. And so I I was aware of the difficulties of trying to fight political battles. But nevertheless, I had left all of that behind. And suddenly in the political sphere, you come across challenges that you're not at all familiar with. I was extremely fortunate, the country unfortunate, because we ran into a foot and mouth disease epidemic shortly after I was appointed. And to be honest, initially I was reading about it just as I would have before in the newspapers. And then I suddenly thought, wait a minute, I'm the chief scientific advisor, I must have a function here. And so pulling together a team of epidemiologists to look at what the causes were for this rapid spread of this disease in the animals of the farmers um, was critically important because it turns out the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries that existed then had simply dusted over lessons learnt from the previous foot-and-mouth disease epidemic, which was largely driven by pigs... And in 2000 and 2001, pigs had been taken out of the equation. And the, the, the reason is very simple, that if a pig farmer lost pigs due through disease, they were not compensated under the European Union r- rules, whereas sheep and cattle farmers were if they lost their animals through disease. So they simply took their animals out of the marketplace. And that is where the disease is spread. You send your animals to the marketplace. They bump into other animals and come back with the disease. So I think the the way we analyzed what was happening, we realized we were treating it in the wrong way. And so we introduced a completely new uh, process for managing this, uh, this awful epidemic. It cost the country about 6 billion pounds. Oh in uh, over the year. Um, And I simply went to the prime minister and said, if we can switch policies to this policy that this team has come up with, we could bring it under control within three days. And we went, when he put me in charge, we went from exponential growth to exponential decay in three days. And so that was my big success story. Prime Minister understanding how science can deliver solutions in real time. And then I was able to put to him this enormous further challenge of climate change. And I had his ear. And he was absolutely astonishingly good at backing everything I was saying.
0: And then we we jumped to 2014 when you're the um, envoy um, uh, for climate change. Cameron and later Theresa May, and uh, were, were coming towards the what became the Paris Climate Accord. What was your involvement in the negotiation ahead of, of, uh, of, of that time?
1: The, the reason why Cameron brought me back into government uh, it, it was, was quite simple, I think, and that is that I had been heavily engaged while working with Tony Blair in working within the Foreign Office um, in setting up climate attachés in our embassies around the world, we had 165 full-time equivalent climate attachés. No other country had any. We, we that, therefore every ambassador knew how important climate change was to the government.
0: So, so you, had, you had Blair's air at the time that he would allow this to happen, but what was the um, what was the driver, what was the purpose behind Blair doing that at the time?
1: It was very simple because we we had produced models uh, showing, and I'm talking when I say we, the Met Office and the Hadley Center there had produced models showing what the challenges would be to the United Kingdom going forward in time with the current behavior, both in terms of continued use of fossil fuels to create energy, but also in terms of deforestation. And what that showed was... As the climate changed and we lost ice on land as a result of the warming, sea levels would rise to the point where the whole of the British Isles would be massively challenged around its coastlines. Our big cities like London, all of the cities on coastlines would be suffering. And we would need several important adaptation measures to be put in place to manage these flood risks. And it looked as if this could come to the point where even London would have to be abandoned. Uh, Now it was the understanding of these challenges that I was asked by Blair to talk to the two houses of parliament about. And it was there that we got all party agreement on action on climate change. So we, we had this great thing. Now Blair did say to me, but we're at less than 2% of global emissions. So if we bring our emissions down to zero and nobody else does anything, we're still faced with all these challenges. And my point was, let's set an example to the rest of the world. If we go into negotiations saying, we'll do this if you do that, we're much less powerful than if we go into negotiations saying, this is what we are doing, what will you do? So,
0: before Paris, you had infrastructure in place around the globe.
1: and I was already traveling around the planet talking about this challenge.
0: So you started sort of bilateral negotiations with lots of countries ahead of arriving in paris
1: so when i when I joined the, rejoined the government under David Cameron, this was then the coalition government um, i I did begin my true negotiations now at this point david cameron had created a a very large budget to assist the negotiators and that budget amounted to eventually over 10 years 9.2 billion pounds if you imagine that no other country had anything approaching that figure we had put 1 billion of this into the uh, international climate fund sitting in seoul in south korea to do the same purpose but we kept the rest so that when we went into negotiations with a developing country they knew we had deep pockets and that we could help them with to manage their transition away from fossil fuels and to adapt to the challenges of climate change this gave us a very important voice in the negotiations. So you've just said it. When I arrived in Paris, I felt as if I knew what the result was going to be. The previous meeting that I had gone to Copenhagen, I knew there could never be an agreement. And at that point, the reason, and this is quite important, the reason there couldn't be an agreement in Copenhagen, 2009, was quite simple that although Obama was believed to be in favor of action, he didn't have the support of his Senate or Congress. And the Chinese president had said, if Obama doesn't sign, we don't sign. So we knew there couldn't possibly be an agreement if the two world biggest emitters and big economies weren't going to sign. And so by the time we got to Paris, we had a different situation. We had backed the idea that this would now be not a top-down agreement telling countries what they had to do from this agreement, but it would have to be every country volunteering what they could do. Now, this weakens the agreement considerably, but it strengthened us because it allowed Obama to sign, and then, of course, the Chinese signed as they had promised. So as a result, we got all nations signing up.
0: So at that point when it was signed, how optimistic why are you in terms of the future for for climate cooperation globally?
1: I I, I actually have to say that I felt, hooray, job done. Yeah. I, I can now... I, I didn't feel I could walk away because I still stayed in government and I stayed in government for another two years after the agreement. Um, but I, I did feel that we had the grounds for moving the entire world in the direction that was needed Um, i had another sense of optimism which was that um, i had been pushing something that became called mission innovation and the idea was that we needed much more public money put into research and development to develop all the technologies we need in the post-fossil fuel world and instead of taking that into the Paris process, where I thought it would just get bogged down. As I traveled around the world, I was trying to persuade countries to volunteer to join this program, which was aimed at raising $30 billion a year to be put into research and development, public money. And on the first day of the COP meeting in Paris, we set up a big flag saying, mission innovation in a big room outside the official negotiating space and invited heads of governments to sit under this if they were committed. Obama was sitting under it and I knew he would. And then we had 21 other heads of government sitting under it. And so there was the agreement, $30 billion a year to be funded. And th- when Trump was appointed, he pulled the United States out, but Biden put them back in. I would say we're now spending about $26 billion a year through that program. And, for example, Bill Gates is a great supporter of the scheme and his breakthrough energy coalition all developed as a result of this scheme coming along.
0: So fast forward to today. Um, uh, last year you were commenting as we went into the polar summers as to what was happening. Um, is Are the polls a good window to talk about where we think anthropogenic impact is, uh, is, is being most felt.
1: Absolutely. So now we come to the state of the world today. And it, it does look very different from the world I was looking at in 2015 leading up to the negotiations. I thought, if we can stop emitting greenhouse gases, if we can stop deforestation, then frankly, problem done. I no longer believe that. If we were to hit net zero tomorrow, I don't believe we're in a safe place at all. So basically, look at what is happening in just the Arctic Circle region around the North Pole. The Arctic Circle as a whole has been heating up at four times the rate of the average heating up of the planet due to climate change. And the reason... There's multiple reasons, but the main reasons. One, the loss of ice has been so dramatic as a result of this slow increase in global temperature, one degree centigrade. The loss of ice has been so dramatic over the Arctic Sea that Blue Sea is now exposed to sunlight, particularly during the polar summer months. It ices over during the winter months, but within a few days of the summer returning, to the north pole we get blue ice blue sea exposed to sunlight blue sea soaks up sunshine the sea warms up rapidly the air above it warms up rapidly and this accelerates the loss of ice so we've got this very big positive feedback the other effect is from smoky fires again we're getting many more forest fires than before and any smoke that lands on the snow tends to blacken it, and again it absorbs much more sunlight. So ice is a very good reflector, and we're losing that good reflector around the North Pole region, which is damaging for the whole planet. But in particular, what is happening in the Arctic Circle region is threefold. One, Greenland has enough ice that if it all melts global sea levels would rise by 7.5 metres, that is 24 feet. Now, clearly, the major cities of the world at a much lower level of sea level rise would have become indefensible. So we're talking about a major challenge to the whole planet. If we then look across at the permafrost on the land, North Pole Arctic Sea surrounds it, the land surrounds that sea, yeah. so, covered by ice uh, over millions of years, and then permafrost on the landmass. Because just
0: to cover on the, on the ice, so we, we, we talk about a blue planet, but we're actually on a white planet too. And the reflective capability of the sunlight and the heat due to the, to the poles and clouds yeah. is huge in terms of protecting the planet.
1: Yes, as we lose ice and expose blue sea, or even as we expose land, then we see this very much quicker temperature rise. But the temperature rise is local, and so we do see this temperature rise over the Arctic Circle four times faster. The Arctic Circle as a whole is now over three degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level. Now what that means is Greenland is now losing ice. We've just had a very detailed report published. What's the rate of loss of ice from Greenland over the last 35 years average? It's estimated to be 30 million tons an hour of ice being lost from Greenland. The estimate over the 35 years is about 1 trillion tons of ice has been lost from Greenland. It looks as if Greenland ice may be melting irreversibly and there's a big tipping point
0: last year we lost how much um uh of the ice in the in the north pole it was was about 1.5 million square kilometers or so yeah. we uh, that was in, in terms of context that was down to just over 7 million square miles left behind so we'll see this this year what happens yeah um so so when you look at the um numbers that the intergovernmental panel on climate change the ipcc which i think in 2004 you, you were early in being being one who was sort of pushing that that was the best current state of play in terms of the science of climate change. Um, Where we are with IPCC at the moment, do you think they're far behind the reality of where we currently stand?
1: I think... The, the, the structure of the IPCC, I, I've got to say, I admire the scientists who work on the IPCC. Nothing I say is critical of them. But the structure is such that, once again, it works under this United Nations umbrella, 197 nations represented. The political systems have to agree to the IPCC reports, and the reports take something like six years to prepare. Now, what this means is that when they are published... Frankly, they are out of date already, and the science of climate change, everything I've recently been describing, uh, is not included in the, the models that are published by the IPCC. That's the first thing. But the second thing is they're, they're prone to be very cautious, and the reason they're very cautious is because the fossil fuel industry is extraordinarily keen to say that the are even the IPCC reports are exaggerating the impact of climate change. And of course, I'm saying just the reverse, that uh, as a result of the sensitivity to what the oil and gas and coal companies are saying, the the whole situation is, is watered down. I mean, if I can just dwell on the the oil, gas, and coal lobby for a moment. It's it's really emerged from the United States. That's where the lobby system is legitimate and very powerful. Um, And you you have to refer to the gun lobby in the United States to give an example where public opinion is completely with better actions on on, uh, gun control. Um, And so what, what, what we know is that the ipcc has become very cautious the scientists themselves become cautious they can only refer to papers that are published with good refereeing through the journals now that's a good thing because that gives you quality but at the same time the most recently published papers are not included so, it, it, none of the work I've just been describing is included, it, it, what, what's happening to the Arctic Circle region, for example. So, I, what I was going to say, for example, the loss of methane from the permafrost region in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. If all of the methane that we believe exists there, and we've got some fairly good measurements, if all of that methane was released over a 20-year period, and it is now being explosively released in some places, global temperatures would rise by 5 to 8 degrees centigrade. We're talking about sea level rises and temperature rises simply from what's happening in the Arctic Circle region that would impact the entire civilization of the planet and, of course, the biosystems as well.
0: Because the methane is 20x the CO2 into the atmosphere.
1: Right, so that in itself is a number that the IPCC uses. Uh, I said over 20 years because the 20-year including lifetime of methane in the atmosphere, the 20-year figure is 80 times. The instantaneous figure is 120 times. So, yes, it's much more serious than just 20 times per molecule than carbon dioxide. Uh, The 20 times is a 100-year figure. Now, what, what that is related to is the fact that methane has a a 10-year half-life in the atmosphere, right? So it would, whatever the concentration at a given time, if there was no more methane produced, it would be half that concentration in 10 years. This is because the methane reacts with oxygen in the air in the presence of sunlight. So what, what we know is that it has a short lifetime compared with carbon dioxide, which is hundreds of years. And so... That figure of 2024 that is used is related to including the lifetime in the analysis. But actually, methane levels are rising so rapidly now. And this is largely from two factors. One is increased meat production from land masses because of meat demand around the world, rising middle classes around the world, uh, demanding more meat. increased rice production to meet demand. Each of these is a big methane producer, but also escaping methane from two sources. One is from recovery of oil, coal, and gas, but also escaping methane from uh, land-based dumps. So, for example, in Delhi, vast amounts of methane are being produced from the land dumps around the city. So... With rapid
0: decarbonisation of the energy complex industry and transportation, um, that won't be enough at this stage.
1: It's it's vital that we do that. Today we are emitting 40 plus billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Add in the methane that's being emitted today, you're over 50 billion tonnes a year. That's an enormous quantity. And we could never remove anything like that quantity in a year. So we have to get that down to zero. But then we need, I think, three things to be put in place in addition. So remove the uh, excess greenhouse gases that are causing what's happening in the Arctic Circle region and also in the Antarctic region. We need to remove excess greenhouse gases, my view, is that we need to bring the level down from where we are today at 500 parts per million of greenhouse gases. Pre-industrial level was 275. I think 350 parts per million it creates a safe future for humanity. That's where we have to be. So let's reduce emissions deeply and rapidly. Let's remove excess greenhouse gases. But all of this is going to take time. And what's happening in the Arctic Circle region means at the moment we don't have time without human intervention in what's happening in the Arctic Circle. So I'm also saying we need a third R, which is re- repair the Arctic Circle. We need to see that the ice that is formed over the Arctic Sea in the winter months over the Arctic Sea, that that ice is retained during the summer months by just for those three months, reflecting sunlight away from the ice. So
0: I'm excited to get into some of the solutions uh, and the climate interventions that um, um, yourself and some of your teams are working on. But before we go there, can we talk about the Climate Crisis Advisory Group and in particular the indexing that you do of countries every few years as well? Because I I think um, when we talk to people about... um, um, climate issues, they sort of look like, with the Chinese burning coal and with the growth in populations in India and other countries, there's nothing we can do. Um, and they sort of negatively sort of look at these countries as not, you know, doing anything. Um, what, what have you guys found out through your work in the CCAG?
1: So the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, very quickly, is uh, 15 to 17 people from... 10, 11 countries around the world, so we are a global group, but we are very much more agile than the IPCC. Many of our members are IPCC authors, but we're much more agile and we report on a monthly basis on what is happening. We've produced over two and a half years, 20 reports on all of the extreme weather events happening around the world and how they might be related to the impacts of climate change.
0: So the CCHE does a number of reports, um, including on different industries and sectors, and, and you've looked at cities and other real solutions to um, these huge challenges. Um, you also produce a um, an index on how countries are doing. Um, uh, and yeah, it's back to that question again of how does that contextualise what we're doing in the in the you know the global north and elsewhere on the planet.
1: So we we let me let me just take you to the the question of India and China. Uh, in in both countries, coal usage is still high. Um, But there's a big difference. In 2012, the the Chinese government, I was out there during this time, uh, made a very important decision that they would become zero emissions on their energy production in a relatively short space of time. And they began work on nuclear power. They began work on... uh, Wind, uh, wind power, they began work on solar power, and they they also developed uh, extremely good hydropower stations. Now, all of this effort was done on a scale that is unimaginable, more than the rest of the world put together. This is China. Yeah. And so with, with China, you see this enormous effort. But in our report, we also point out that between the year 2000 and the year 2020, China has seen roughly 850 million people coming out of poverty and becoming middle class that's the success of their economy growing at 12 to 15% over a big time a big part of that time and so that that increased wealth for the whole country was going into the developing part of their economy and But the result is the demand from those middle class people mirrors precisely the demand from the middle classes that we're used to in Europe and the United States. And so their demand for electricity has outstripped the ability to deliver it from non-fossil fuel sources. And so the criticism that they are still building and still using coal-fired power stations is absolutely valid. But at the same time, we've just got to remember what lies behind it. There is an enormous effort from China. Their effort has also produced a massive advantage for the rest of the world, particularly with solar panels. So they are now the producer of over 90% of the globe's usage of solar panels. Those solar panels are difficult to beat because they have extremely good research laboratories in Western countries running for those companies in China and at the same time they have Chinese workers producing them at a very low price. Very difficult to beat them and the technologies are always getting ahead of the game. So I think in in that sense China's doing a good job. The big news now is electric vehicles taking off in China. there's no country has has met that electric vehicle challenge more quickly than China. But there's an advantage because the new cars are outstripping old cars because of this rapid rise in the middle class. And so as they introduce electric ve- vehicles into the marketplace, within three, four years, they've got 30% of vehicles on the road are electric. Right? So, So what you see is this rapid transition capability when you've got a big growing economy. But underlying it is still the vehicles that were there before four years ago. Yeah. Right, so it, it's, a, it's a challenging situation. I can't give you the same in terms of India. Prime Minister Modi, when he came in, I was out to, into his office two weeks after he was elected because he made a speech saying, we will solarize India from top to bottom. And I wanted to go out and congratulate him and say, join Mission Innovation. As a matter of fact, I had then called it the Global Apollo Program. It was Prime Minister Modi who said, I don't like that. Let's call it Mission Innovation. And did he get behind it? Yes, he's still behind it. Now, it is a similar problem to the problem of China. Rapid growth in their economy, 8 9%, not quite as high as the Chinese was, but it's a very rapidly growing economy, means that the demand for more energy from electricity is outstripping their capability of defossilizing. There's another problem in that China produces a vast amount of coal, and so the workforce in the coal industry is enormous. Similar problem to South Africa, where they have a a big industry in the coal production itself, and that makes it more difficult for for these countries to make the transition. However, we also, in that analysis of those four countries, did a comparison between the the, 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 the different cities in these countries. if you If you take, for example uh, Jakarta and Indonesia, Uh, The Indonesian government has announced that Jakarta is not going to survive with rising sea levels as the capital of the country, so they're now planning to move the capital away from the low-lying land, uh, unfortunately with a big damage to the biosecure system where they're moving it to, but their, their plan, and the north part of Jakarta is already under seawater right around the year, right? Their plan doesn't involve what do you do with the 15 to 20 million people living in Jakarta. Uh, Now, if you compare that with, for example, Shanghai, Shanghai is also faced with flood risks and they've been facing this for many, many years. And in Shanghai,
0: they are having to adapt rapidly to this. Yes,
1: and so they already have easily the biggest water pumps in the world in Shanghai keeping Shanghai dry today. So this amazing city, which matches any city in terms of wealth and well-being, uh, this amazing city is kept dry by the careful planning that's gone into it. Compare that with New York. New York, Hurricane Sandy, 2012, very badly flooded, and uh, big loss uh, loss and damage costs. The city decided that they too had to have an adaptation measure in place. And they raised the money and and, uh, hired the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, who are a very good group of civil engineers, to come in and give them a plan. And their plan was to build a wall around the city. And what they said was the wall would have to be between 8 foot and 20 foot high, and it would have to be a 50 mile long wall around the major part of the city now the first thing is the major part of the city excludes the poorer areas okay Uh, but the second thing is the people of new york did not want a wall around their city so the plan was rejected four or five years took them to build that plan and we were into the mayor's office in new york they are looking at many alternatives but frankly difficult to think of an alternative for New York, very vulnerable to rising sea levels. So each comparison we made is built around what can be learnt from one city to another around the world? What can be learned from one country to another? Can we spread best practice?
0: So in terms of getting the, the genie back in the bottle, um, um, what can we talk about today in terms of Climate interventions, the repair side, whether it's biomimicry of natural processes or something else.
1: So, I think I think the <clears throat> the repair side really has to include both removal of excess greenhouse gases and also the the refreezing of the Arctic and I'm afraid also the Antarctic. Antarctic's a bigger challenge.
0: How can you possibly refreeze these areas?
1: So, refreezing, we've got. Two major options there are many others have been put forward but two major options one is stratospheric aerosols We know if there's been a volcanic eruption the planet has cooled down a very big volcanic eruption such as 1815 The volcanic eruption caused global cooling.
0: I thought the eruptions put loads of bad stuff into the air
1: it puts a lot of sulfates into the stratosphere as well. Yeah. And up in the stratosphere, these sulfates reflect sunlight away from the planet. Wow. Okay. So the model there is to, to mimic what happens with the volcanic eruptions and put sulfates into the stratosphere. And you would then reflect sunlight away. You have to keep putting it up because it doesn't stay up there. Now, that, that is a planetary model where you cool the whole planet, not just a regional model. The alternative is marine cloud brightening. That's the general heading for this, which is also imitating natural processes. How are clouds formed over the ocean? If there's a bit of a rough water on the ocean, creates tiny droplets of seawater. In the sunlight, those droplets are picked up by an upward draft of warm air, over the Blue Sea, and that upward draught carries these droplets up five, 6,000 meters. In that draught, most of them lose their water, and you're left with one ice crystal per droplet. <clears throat> so these ice crystals hover up there, collect water vapor again, and there you've got a cloud. And that cloud, if the ice crystals are very small, is white, reflecting sunlight. If the ice crystals are bigger, it's black and it's about to rain or snow. So we know how to create white clouds. And the question is, can we create white clouds in such a way <clears throat> that they are carried by air streams over the Arctic Circle region, but just for the three months of the polar summer? And um, th- so the technology is there
0: to do it, but to do it on scale, is it
1: So here in Cambridge we instigated a a program of work and all uh, all the programs that we're instigating through the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge University are aimed at being global hubs. So we're working with consortia around the world. Um, Here in the... Department of Engineering, they're working on how do we create the droplets of just the right size to create white clouds. Let's not waste energy on creating black clouds. So we're going to work, uh, that, that work is progressing. Um, the, the, the work needs marine engineers and there's a wonderful marine engineer by by the name of Salter who works in Edinburgh, and he has produced marine vessel designs that would create these droplets uh, using natural wind and water movement to create the energy to do this, Um, and so the, 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 the... this is all being developed. Unfortunately, the funds are in short supply to manage this. So we we need considerably more funding. We're in the millions of dollars now for the whole project. And we need to be in the tens of millions going up to hundreds of millions going forward so that we can create a fleet of vessels in the ocean around the Arctic Circle region, so that when we know which way the wind's blowing, you activate those vessels to send white clouds over the pole. Now, that that's what, an operation that we are favouring, The uh, putting sul- sulfates into the stratosphere. We're holding back on, uh, but there is considerable work being done in the United States in particular. Uh, David Keith is the leader in this field, and... Um, there are many modelers who have done models on the stratospheric aerosol experiments, and uh, there is a concern that, for example, if you get it wrong, you might lose the monsoon over India and the dramatic effect that would have is.
0: What about uh, marine biomass uh,
1: regeneration?
0: What can you tell us about that and uh, and whale poop?
1: Well, right, so this is, if you like, my little baby. Uh, Marine biomass regeneration uh, emerges from work that was done in the years 2008 to 2012 on the deep oceans of the world when they were trying to put uh, uh, iron material onto the surface of the ocean because they believed there was a missing element in the ocean to create the phytoplankton blooms that are necessary for the fish to survive in the oceans. Now, what what we decided was that we would look at the nutrients needed in the surface of the ocean to create these phytoplankton blooms. Now, phytoplankton blooms can be created when there's a volcanic eruption. So we've followed in detail the, the recent volcanic eruptions in uh, Tonga and Vanuatu. And we indeed find that there are phytoplankton blooms that follow the dust sprinkling onto the surface of the ocean. Because volcanic dust, everyone who's a wine grower knows this, contains a lot of the fertile material needed for green material to grow. Uh, And so we've also done an analysis of the surface. We is this broad consortium, many of them based here in Cambridge the surface analysis of the seawaters of the deep waters of the oceans. And those uh, reveal what nutrients are missing. And all of these nutrients are present in volcanic dust. So we are now doing experiments with volcanic dust. We've got a team based in Goa. Our teams are based around the world, Cape Town, Goa, Hawaii, uh, Southern California. Um, Our team in Goa uh, is sitting next to a rice factory, and a waste product from the rice factory is rice husks. And so if you take rice husks and warm them, they become wonderful little rafts on the surface of the ocean. They float on the surface of the ocean. So on one side of the rice husks, what we're putting is lignin as a glue, and then putting volcanic dust onto that and this is all being done in goa by the team in goa and they're distributing it to the other members of the consortium so that we could do experiments the rice husks kept in the surface of the ocean where the sun hits the ocean they they get wet by the ocean so the Fertile material is slowly dissolved into the ocean, it's kept there for several months, and it means we get a very good phytoplankton bloom. That's the objective. The experiments still need to be conducted, still need more funding. We're in short supply always of funding for these very big exercises.
0: And the phytoplankton bloom, just um, uh, finishing off the, the cycle there in terms of the carbon sequestration that comes from it,
1: so the phytoplankton bloom itself takes up a vast amount of carbon dioxide. A bloom might typically cover tens of thousands of square kilometers of ocean. So you get a very big green area. Um, and you, you you can then see that phytoplankton is the initial foodstuff for fish larvae of all kinds of fish. And so where there's no phytoplankton, the fish larvae hatching from fish eggs die, But where there's a phytoplankton bloom, you might get even a quarter of a billion fish within a month or two in the presence of this bloom. And of course, those fish attract other fish as predators, and the whole system takes off as an ecosystem in the ocean, a green ocean forest. Now, our objective there is actually not aimed at the carbon dioxide capture. It's aimed at restocking the oceans with the level of fish, crustaceans, and mammals that they used to have 400 years ago. I say 400 years ago because that's when we began whaling. And this whole chunk of work emerged from the understanding developed from within Germany, Uh, wonderful scientists there who, who took films of a a pod of blue whales coming up to the surface of the ocean. And as they come up, we know that they've been down there a long time eating krill 300 to 500 meters below sea level. And then they come up, we know that they're coming up for air because from above we see the great spout. But film underneath and you'll see that there's some other function that they come up for and that's to defecate. And so they disappear in a cloud of poo. And so what you get is a great big spread of poo over the surface of the ocean in the sunlight. Once again, you get a green area formed. So we were trying to mimic the behavior of the so-called baleen whales, these whales that have a large amount of blubber. Unfortunate for these whales and unfortunate for the ocean fish stock that these whales were captured as our first oil discovery. We captured them for their blubber. And the, bay- the biggest whale, the blue whale, is down to probably less than 1% of the population it was 400 years ago. Our project has a, a very large aim, which is to see if we can get the, the baleen whale population back up to where it was, and then we can stand back and leave them to carry on.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, so well, the, you are working on a, a number of distinct projects that are uh, are not just sort of looking at sort of how we can 1, 2x some of these problems. They are the big, uh, not moonshots, because they're, they're real, um, uh, but they need uh, funding uh, continually um, and cooperation. So um, one one of the questions that we like to ask towards the end of one uh, of the podcasts is, um, what have you learned about getting different groups to collaborate
1: I tell you, it's wonderful. So if if we take the marine biomass regeneration, by the way, the byproduct is capture of carbon dioxide. I believe we will capture billions of tons of carbon dioxide per annum when it's run at scale. The exciting thing about these projects is everyone gets caught up in the importance of what they're doing and the excitement, therefore, of every single development that takes place. And when you work with an international community, I mean, here's a big breakthrough coming from Goa in India, which you might say perchance, that they have this rice factory right there. But we we all benefit from this international collaboration. Now, in a sense, that's simply telling you how science has always worked science works through international collaborations different different experiences different experiences bringing different expertise to the table and at the same time we are able therefore to work on the deep oceans of the whole world and this means that we really have our fingertips into an enormous enterprise now when i say enterprise people have asked me are you going to set up a company we will probably set up a not-for-profit company to work around small island states because small island states have the ability to decide what happens in their extended economic zone into the oceans the eez extends 1000 kilometers from the coastline of the islands if there's no other island in the vicinity and so we can go into those zones and raise the fish stock in those zones, the island will benefit, and we will simply treat it as a development process through a not-for-profit company and then move from island to island.
0: But in, in the process of, you know, um, uh, you're a world leader in this area, and you're also a world leader in collaboration in terms of what you've done uh, all the way through the Paris Agreement, what you do today, how do you get People with different goals and everything to collaborate around a table. Has, has there been some some techniques or things that you found that typically work, or every situation's been different? Uh,
1: um and, and of course it's not something that I deliberately sat down and worked out. It all it all happened as I developed my experience very quickly. Um, but it, but it for example, when I when I talked to the British Parliament back in 2003, 2004, about the impacts of climate change on Britain, I was totally focused on the British Isles and what could be delivered there. But when I went, at the invitation of President Lula, I went out to Brazil, uh, and at this point I now have an opportunity to talk to the President of Brazil. I have to do my homework in advance. And what I was able to say to him is, any reduction in the removal of forests in Brazil, is going to make the biggest contribution in the world, nationwide, uh, to the business of reducing the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And, And so you can boast about this to other countries, that your emissions reduction process is matching whatever anyone else is doing in terms of moving away from fossil fuels. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Brazil doesn't have to also move away from fossil fuels. But there is um, a good starting point for Brazil there. And then, of course, I I visited their amazing hydropower dam. it is just astonishing how much of their electricity comes from hydropower. This is challenged, by the way, because hydropower dams depend on water flow. Water flow depends on climate, and climate is changing around the world. So as we adapt to climate change, we've also got to look at this question of hydropower, water provision, etc.
0: But you, in that instance, you, you, you figured out what the, um, what the individual was going to be driven by.
1: Yes, and, and what a country needs, what it can contribute, and and there's no point going into any country and pointing fingers. Try and see it from their point of view.
0: So I think before uh, the, the Paris Agreement, you'd visited like 96 countries or so in one year. Uh, you do a huge,
1: huge amount. How, how have you looked after yourself? Um, one of the wonderful things about doing something where it seems as if you're getting a good positive return, you pick up energy from that. And you know that, it keeps you going. And so the the success that I felt was coming my way really kept me going. Uh, There have been times when I've suddenly felt, oh my goodness, it's not going the right way. But then you pick it up again, and have to decide, how do we now move forward? And that's really what I've been doing since I moved out of government in 2017 and working particularly through the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. And by the way, all of the funding of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group comes from philanthropic funding. We don't want to be seen to be beholden to any private sector interests. What would you say to a young Dave? If if I was giving advice to myself, uh, I I would I would say have a bit more confidence in what you're doing. I mean, for example, when I left South Africa, um, I had never left the country, uh, and I was not allowed to ever go back. At least, if that government was still in power, I arrived in this country feeling alone. Uh, however. I landed perfectly on my feet, you know? and that's the story of my life. It's always jump in and see what happens.
0: So the point to end our great conversation today is but you've just got to keep moving forward and, and jump in and have the confidence to keep moving forward.
1: And keep your thoughts ahead.
0: Thanks so much for the time today um, and for everything that you've done. Um, hope we get to uh, speak again lots in the future.
1: I look forward to that too.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of High Net Purpose. We've got monthly episodes airing throughout the year from all across the globe. Stay tuned for next time by subscribing and following us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at High Net Purpose. All content of High Net Purpose is provided as general information only. It does not constitute any advice, recommendation, or representations, and is not intended to influence listeners or users into making any specific investments or any other decisions. Please be aware that guests and presenters on high net purpose may have investments in any of the topics or products being discussed. Their reviews and opinions are their own and should not be taken as endorsements or financial advice. Before making financial decisions, we strongly recommend seeking advice from a qualified financial professional. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed or published in whole or part.